I wanted to share with you guys because it's kind of an expression of some of the things we'll be looking at the next few weeks. Um, that this morning at the morning service, Pastor Nick taught. Um, next week, Pastor James will be teaching. And that is by design. And it's not just to give me a break or whatever. It has to do with the things that we're learning here. It has to do with the fact that, um, that we want to be the type of church where um, the responsibility of teaching is a shared responsibility between the pastors. We want to be the type of church that raises up those who are called into pastoral ministry to learn to teach. Uh, and most importantly, um, this is not my church. This is, as we'll see tonight, I have a role in this church and other people have a role in this church and you have a role in this church, but it's not my church. It's not built on my shoulders. It's not about me. Um, and, uh, and like I said, we are so culturally prone to this identity orientation around the church that has to do with the pastor or the teacher or this guy or, or all of these things. We're just so prone to that in this church. We're really intentionally trying to do something different. We're trying to circumvent the issue, if you will. Um, and so keep that in mind as we look at the passage tonight, and I'd encourage you, if you've got the time, uh, to listen into Nick's teaching as well. I'll, I'll tell you what, I studied all week to teach this passage. Uh, you know, I'm going to teach it now, uh, and I'm still glad I was there this morning to hear Nick teach because, uh, because he's not me, frankly, which is all a good, healthy dose that all of you could use. So let's read the passage together. We're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, and read through verse 17, and then we'll pray. <clears throat> what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let's pray. God, no one is born into the church. And so we bring in inherently, even if we're just children, we bring in preconceived ideas of what is and what should be, and how things work. And oftentimes those are grafted together uh, examples from other places. And what Paul emphasizes tonight that I pray that you'd impress on our hearts is that the church is something else, that it's unique, that it's something different entirely. And because of that, it needs to look different 
in terms of leadership, and we need to look different at our leaders. So I pray that you'd help us to see these things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If we were to just take the passage that I read and break it into digestible, self-standing pieces, it's pretty easy to do. Um, It actually deals with three different pictures. The first being a field and a farming metaphor. The second being a building and a construction metaphor. And then finally, there's this point that the building that he's talking about is none other than the temple, right? And so these three sections, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised in your Bible if it has paragraph breaks. That's where the paragraph lies. That's kind of the movements of Paul's argument. But what I want to draw your attention to tonight is there's something going on here that's more than metaphor, more than picture. It will be tremendously helpful for us tonight to think through how it is that the church is like a field and how it is the church is like a building and how it is that the church is like a temple. But more importantly, it's the theological points, the points that he makes about what the church is that shape the rest of the understanding. So for example, let's look at this first section. He opens with a, with a question in verse five. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? For context, if you go back and look at verse 4, here's what's going on in the church of Corinth that leads to Paul asking this rhetorical question. He says in verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Okay. And so the danger here that he's recognizing is that in the Corinthian church, they're starting to take sides. Both Paul and Apollos had had roles in the church, substantial ones. The way Paul labels it later is, I planted the church and Apollos took over and he's been watering the church. He's been overseeing this field. He's been caring for it and nurturing it since then. But people were dividing uh, the church and dividing themselves and creating a hierarchy within the church of whose leader was your leader. Well, I stand with this pastor. Well, you know, I'm in the better crowd because this is my man and I'm one of his, right? This is what was going on. But notice what Paul says there in verse 4. He says, are you not being merely human? Okay. Now that in and of itself is an odd statement. You know, the, the idea of merely human when asked of human beings like us is, is a head turner. It's, like it's like a, what? What did you say? Yes, I'm being merely human. But the point that he's trying to make is that, that Christians, in a sense, are not just human because we have the Holy Spirit. That the change that happens in receiving the gospel and becoming a Christian is so profound that it's you, yes, still you, forgiven you, saved you, but all the more given God's Holy Spirit. And so effectively what he says is, aren't you behaving like the old you? Aren't you behaving like God hasn't given you a part of himself? Isn't this divisiveness just normal human behavior? And that's frustrating to him. So it's not surprising then that when he moves on, he says part of the reason, part of the thing that's gone sideways here is not just are you behaving like merely humans, but you're behaving like the church is just merely another human organization. Okay. What he is concerned about in this passage applies to every organization that we are a part of. Right? The dangers that he presents and the concerns and the human nature that leads us to skew our understanding of leadership, we do that with political leaders, we do that with bosses, we do it with ourselves and our subordinates in whatever context it is, we do it with um, talking heads on the news and celebrities in general, 
our whole approach is wrong, but it's important to recognize that what he says following is not a general discourse on leadership. The truths he presents to combat these are not rooted in big general ideas that need to be reminded of, for example, a Christian view of authority. Instead, he specifically deals with the church as not merely another human organization. Okay? It's something different entirely, which makes this, uh, this bleeding in of our cultural understanding of what leaders are, how to look at them, how to compare them, um, you know, uh, especially problematic. And so he says again in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And listen to the answer he gives. The very first word out of his mouth as he answers this question should be surprising to you. Servants. Servants. For us, when we're just dealing with the English language, we would generally see a juxtaposition between the term leader and the term servant. Right? In fact, sometimes we feel like it's the, the peanut butter and jelly of the authority relationship, right? And so some people are leaders and others are in service roles. And even here, you should recognize something that's a little bit surprising. And by the way, the word that Paul uses here for servant is a specific one. It's the Greek word doulos, okay? Um, uh, sorry, it's the, it's the Greek word diakono. Doulos would be the normal word he uses, but here he uses diakono. If you've been with our church for a while, you would know that we just started a deacon ministry. It's the same word. But the word he chooses is the word you'd use for a waiter at a restaurant, okay, or a busboy. Okay, it has to do with those who, who handle and serve food to another person. Okay? And so effectively what he's saying is when you're arguing over who's the best, what you're basically saying is, well, this is my favorite waiter. Right? All I want you to realize tonight is the tension in that reality, that that's just not something we usually talk about. Like, if you're sitting in your favorite restaurant, you may have waiters that you like and don't like, but you don't, you don't identify with them. Like, you know what, your whole restaurant experience is invalidated if you don't have Sue, right? Do you see the tension here that he's creating? But I'm pointing this out specifically because if we're not willing to recognize the distance between the way we normally think about leaders and the word that Paul uses here to start the conversation, then you're not going to realize how, um, not novel, not life-changing, uh, but in that vein, how different what he presents is here. Okay, so he calls them servants. And once again, this is not something coming directly out of Paul's mind. This, doesn't, this idea doesn't originate with Paul. Paul hadn't written a book on servant leadership, uh, you know, and been much published. He's just reminding us of what Jesus taught. Jesus says specifically to his disciples, he says, you know that the nations, when they're in authority, lord it over one another. They, they dangle their privilege over one another. And he says, but not so with you. He who desires to be the greatest in the church and the kingdom of God should be the least and the servant of all, okay? And so Jesus was the one who changes the paradigm, who changes the language here. Paul just picks up on that, and then he starts in his first illustration uh, to kind of explain this. And what he does, I want you to notice there's a relationship here between the fact that uh, what he does is basically call them farmers and the fact that he pictures the church as a field, Okay. The relationship there is important, and we'll see why in just a second. So what he says here uh, in verse 6 is this 
ag agrarian farming metaphor. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Okay? And so the picture here is of the church as a field. And like every other picture Paul uses for the church, first, first thing, just notice that it's, uh, it's a community picture. Okay? So he doesn't talk about plants, he talks about a field. When he talks about a building, uh, as Nick said this morning, one brick is not a building. Okay? It's collective. Later in the book, when he talks about a body, one finger is not a body. Like, there's a major difference between saying, we found a body in the sound and we found a finger in the sound, right? If somebody said to you, they found a body in the sound and you discovered it was just a finger, you'd be like, wait a minute, that's not the same thing, okay? Uh, other metaphors that it uses are, are the flock. Even that, a sheep is not a flock, okay? But more importantly, he uses this metaphor of field to demonstrate something important, which is this, that the church belongs to God that it's his field, that it's his farm. Okay, so notice what he says here. Um, he says in, um, in verse six, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now listen to this in verse eight. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God fellows workers. You are God's field. God's building, okay? Now, I know that that statement, you are God's field or God's building, even we are God's fellow workers, those come at the end, but he's working backwards, okay? He starts, he explains the illustration, and then he roots it in the truth, and the truth is the fact that the church belongs to God. You see, when the Corinthian church was saying, I follow Paul, it was synonymous with saying, I belong to Paul. I'm one of his disciples. I identify with Paul. Okay? I'm from the church of Paul. Okay? The idea that Paul finds so offensive here is it's forgotten um, the real hierarchy of the church. Now, there is a difference here. He points out that they're merely day laborers, right? They just work in the fields, but the farm belongs to someone else. Okay? Uh, but he also says something else that's a little bit nuanced, a little bit different, something that you can't say of most of the people who own a farm. What he says is, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Okay? Now, owning a farm doesn't give you the magical power of plant growth. Right? That's not part of the deal. Uh, with God, though, he's recognizing this reality that um, even in the farming world, there's a part that farmers don't do. Paul says, look, I did, I did a part. I did my part. I did my assigned part, he even says. Apollos did a part. He did his assigned part, and they're clearly both necessary, right? Farming doesn't work without planting. It doesn't work without, without some form of watering. Those things have to be done. If there's no farmer to do those things, we don't call it farming. We, it's just nature, right? But the intentional act of farming involves farmers, but growth as essential as planting and watering are, isn't found in the planting or the watering itself. Do you see that? The, the difference here may seem a little bit nuanced to us because we like to take ownership for everything, right? But what he's recognizing here is putting a seed in the ground and knowing that it should grow is great. But you can't take credit for the growth. You just can't. The miracle of life is not found in your ability to plant a seed. It doesn't matter how much showmanship you bring to the seed planting game, right? It doesn't matter how skillful you are at planting seeds. There's lots of 
inability that could restrict the ability for a seed to grow, but you're not bringing anything to the table. You're not the, even if you're a vital part of the, uh, of the arrangement, you're not the active ingredient. Same with watering. Watering is important for plants to grow, uh, but it's not the growth itself. So taking this back to the church, when he says, I planted, what Paul's recognizing is the fact that he started the church. In fact, this is where we get the word for planting churches that we use today from this passage. When we talk about a new church beginning, we generally talk about it being a planting. You see, Paul had rolled into Corinth and began to share with people about Jesus and preached about the fact that he um, had died and resurrected, and because of that, forgiveness and repentance were available in his name. And as that word was going out, as that seed was sown, plants started to grow. The field started to produce. Then Paul moved on after 18 months, and one of the speakers who came to the Corinthian church at that point was Apollos. And Apollos had a different job than Paul did. He had different gifts than Paul did. He had a different role in the church, whereas Paul was a planter, Apollos was a waterer. And so he didn't start something new. He didn't uh, come into Corinth where there was no church, and then by the time he left there was a church, he came to an already growing field and took care of it, nurtured it. But let's just recognize a couple of things here that he wants to get to the point of. The first one is the fact that although both of them had a role to play, it was God who did the most important part. Okay? They're just servants through whom you believed, and then notice what it says, as the Lord assigned to each. They're just day laborers. They're just working the field. They were given not only the tools and the seeds and the land to till. But more than that, this other element, right? Once again, over, over your employment, it's not just that they can't take the credit because it was God's property that they were using and God's seeds that they were planting. They t- can't take the credit because the growing itself was not something they could bring to the table. Okay? Now, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been harping on this fact that we have a responsibility to share with people about Jesus, to be faithful, to um, give them a reason for the hope that lies within us, as Peter says, to tell people about what God has done in Jesus Christ. But no matter how eloquent you are, no matter how um, forceful you are or bold you are, no matter how often you do it, the thing that brings life where there is no life, the thing that brings light where there is darkness, the thing that gives people ears to hear is the fact that God is working through his spirit, okay? That's the same thing that's being emphasized here. Here's the first thing you may have misunderstood about the role of a pastor in the church. It's not my job to grow the church. It's not. It's not my job to convert people, okay? In fact, if you feel this responsibility to share Jesus, it's not your job to convert them, okay? You were just, as he says here, a vessel through whom the Lord is working, servants through whom people believed. Uh, and then notice there's, there's two things here that I think are really interesting. They're not main points, but they are interesting. The first is Paul recognizes that the workers have different roles, right? Here's one of the places where the Corinthian church was going wrong, and we follow suit a lot. We look at the pastor we identify with and we gauge all other ministries, all other churches, all other pastors by them. Frankly, I'm just as prone to this as anyone else. 
Like, I'm so committed to what God has called me to in the shape, if you will, of my ministry that a lot of times I get really irritated with people who have different ministries. And I'm like, you're doing it wrong, right? But the reality is planting and watering are very different things. And for the, for the waterer to go, oh man, you know, I'm not doing my watering the way he's planting. I should really change up my game would be a mistake. It would ruin the garden. In fact, I think we could extend this metaphor. There are people who are called to plant churches and move on. That used to drive me crazy. Anytime I heard of somebody who started a church and then left, I was like, coward. You know, where are you going? Why don't you stay put? What sort of ambition is taking you away from the people that you've been loving and caring from, you know, to greener pastures? But the reality is Paul himself traveled the known world and planted hundreds of churches exactly as God called him to. Others are just waterers. This is another thing. I'm the worst person when it comes to this stuff. I'm the worst example. I look at people who are unwilling to go and start a new church, and they're like, well, I just want to find a church that needs a pastor and step in there. And I think the same thing, coward. What are you doing? Why don't you just, you know, get bold and go do it yourself? But the reality is God has called people to different things. Like I said, if we extend the metaphor, some ministries are built all around weeding the field, right? recognizing that there's a lot of places where these things go sideways, where um, false teaching is a possibility and they devote their lives and their ministries to clarifying exactly what's true and pointing out error, right, so that it doesn't do damage, uprooting the weeds that have a tendency to grow. And sometimes if you're a part of a church where the gifting and the calling is shaped that way, you look at other ministries and you go, man, those people are in so much trouble, they're in so much danger because their pastor doesn't do the important work, right? But the point here, first and foremost, is that roles and callings differ. And then, obviously, related to this, gifts are different. Notice once again what he says. He says, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Okay? So not only did they have different roles, but they had different levels of giftings. Okay? God was sovereignly orchestrating not just their calling in ministry, but the ministry itself. And this is something to recognize because we tend to think that the most gifted are the most important. And those who appear to us to be less, less gifted are less important, or maybe they're not working as hard, or a thousand other things. Just riddle me this. When you assess a successful church, all of our metrics fall short of these realities, right? If you want to know if the farm is healthy, if the servant is faithful, and you go, well, how big's his budget? Well, how many people come to that church? Even if you ask questions like, we'll see this later, how many baptisms have happened? All of these things are missing a major point, okay? But he does recognize the differences here. Then there's another one, verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth, okay? And so he basically says, why are you comparing nobodies? He says, the reality the miracle of the church is not found in the talented or, or in this job or that job or this leader or that leader. God is actively working in his church, and sometimes that's through us, and sometimes that's in spite of us. But, but to say, well, I want to be a part of Paul's church is, is nothing short of surrendering the reality of what the church is. It belongs to God. He's created it. He's called us out through Jesus Christ. By his spirit, he is brought us to life. And then verse 8, he says, he who plants and he who waters are one. This is another point. 
These people are saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and Paul doesn't come in and go, forget about Apollos. Do you know how much I've done for this church? He, he doesn't enter into the game and say, look, you just got to play for the right team. He says, why are you fighting when we're on the same team? Right? He says, yes, I planted, but I'm so grateful that Apollos watered, because if I had just left and the plants just sat there, they would die and never bear fruit. Right? They're both working towards what? The same end, which is fruit, which has a lot of moving parts. The reality is, there is one church. There is one field. There is, as we'll see, one foundation and no other foundation which can be laid. Which means if you're building on that foundation, if you're working on that field, you're working towards the same goal. Okay, And so, even this tendency we have to be Uh, judgmental of other churches recognize that that's judgmental of the church first and foremost not just other churches but of the church when in actuality we're working together these leaders are plowing the same field and then notice how he finishes this sentence not only does he say we're one but he says each will receive his wages according to his labor basically what it says here is that God's a good employer he doesn't equalize it out and say um, well I want to be fair, so no matter what your role was, no matter what your job was, no matter how hard you worked, um, you know, I'm, I'm a socialist God, I love everybody, so everybody gets the same reward. On the other hand, he doesn't make improper and unfair comparisons. Just go to your own employment history. Have you ever dealt with this? Have you ever recognized that compensation wasn't equal to work? Uh, that, that it didn't seem to be even about roles at all, but there was something else on the table, maybe it's nepotism, Uh, or maybe it's uh, things that have nothing to do with job uh, performance, like charisma, you know, and likability. He he recognizes here that that's not how God works. That every contract, if you will, God makes with his people in his field is a one-to-one contract, and it's assessed on the role that he's calling them to, on the tools and gifts that he's given them, and the outcome of that, okay? Once again, what this does is it denies the possibility of comparison, in which we normally think, of trying to assess and rank pastors, rank leaders. The recognition here is that, uh, I mean, to be obvious, God calls some people to tiny country churches where the town is 45 people and their congregation is, you know, half that. And, uh, And God gives tremendous gifts to some people and does tremendous things through their ministry, but in the end, it's not going to come down to numbers. It's going to come down to faithfulness. Okay? It's going to be a personal relationship. And then the most important thing here is in verse 9, for we are God fellows, God's fellow workers. Now, how do we read that as we read it in English? Not only are Paul and Apollos and I on the same team, but God's on our team too. We're all working together. That's not what Paul says here. Okay? Grammatically, what he says is, Paul and I are both co-workers and God is our boss. One way to put it that'd be more appropriate to the grammar is we are God's or the fellow workers, the co-workers who belong to God, okay? And that makes sense because what does he say here? He says, we are the workers that belong to God. You are the field that belongs to God. You are the building that belongs to God. The grammar is consistent in all of those. Guys, the difference between we are God's fellow workers and we are the fellow workers that belong to God is the difference between assistant regional manager and assistant to the regional manager, <laughs> right? And the, the difference in feeling and sentiment about those things is exactly the problem that Paul is dealing with here. 
They're just employees. They're just farmers. They have a servant role. And this idea, you know, that, that this is my church or my work or I've accomplished this is just outright missing the reality of what the church is. Guys, if I can put it simply put, if the church is what it says it is, then it's a miracle. And by nature, you can't take credit for miracles. Okay? And so the danger that's going on here is that they've forgotten that the church belongs to God. And so now they're dividing it into smaller parties and, and wanting to sign up for the church that belongs to Paul or the church that belongs to Apollos or the church that belongs to celebrity pastor that you're thinking of right now. It's forgetting the reality. It's forgetting the truth. But he doesn't stop there. He moves on to a second truth. And we've been seeing this over and over again, and I'm going to hit it again. Paul's thinking, these, these passages over and over again, is Trinitarian in nature. What I mean is that he sees everything he talks about in the view of the fact that God is three in one. The fact that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are working together. And when I say a theology of the church, ultimately I mean that the church is a God thing. And so it's owned by God. And when he moves to the building metaphor, we see that it's founded on the Son. It's founded on Jesus Christ. Now, why does he switch metaphors? Because there's a lot of similarities here between builders and farmers, right? In fact, many of the points that we've already made can be laid on those two. But here's a big difference that comes out. Whereas the first one emphasizes the fact that we can't take the credit, the second one emphasizes the fact of responsibility, okay? And that's a hard thing to hold in tension. If we just had this first passage, there'd be a tendency to think, well, God's going to do the miraculous part, so I might as well just sit on my hands. Or it doesn't matter what these pastors do or how they perform or, or all of these things. There's hints in a different direction, but the focus is on reminding us that this is a work of God, and he's the primary worker, and he's the only one who gets the credit. When he changes to the building metaphor, though, he reminds us that that doesn't excuse human responsibility in what happens. Okay? And so, for example... Notice how Paul introduces himself, and once again, it seems out of tune with what he just said. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder. You, you know what the words there for skilled master builder are literally? Wise architect. Okay? Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. First off, when we think of a wise architect of a building and we ask who, who's responsible for the building, that's one of the candidates, is it not? Like, Trump Tower may be owned by Donald Trump, but somebody designed that building. And when we talk about ownership and, and credit and these types of things, that's part of it. So it seems strange, doesn't it, that he says, look, Paul's nothing, and he says, now, I started this church like a wise architect. And the second reason this is really interesting is because he uses the same word here. It's translated skilled in our Bibles, um, but it's the same word for wisdom that he's been contradicting for the letter so far. When he said, Corinthians, you're obsessed with worldly wisdom, and so you're missing that the foolishness of God is better than the wisdom, right? He's created this juxtaposition. He says, I came to Corinth, and I played the fool intentionally. I avoided the wisdom that you were so familiar with. And now he says, I came, and I was the wise architect. It's strange, okay? But he's doing something on purpose. He's drawing attention to the fact that there is responsibility involved, and he roots it in the same place. Did you notice verse 10? According to the grace of God given to me. Okay, so how is it that he, he came like a skilled master builder? Because that's what God had given him. 
Later on in Paul's letter, he kind of untangles this knot that I think we get stuck in. This relationship between the God who must work or nothing happens and the fact that, that we have responsibility to work, that we're supposed to do part of this. And what he says is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, nonetheless, I labored more mightily than any of the others, although it wasn't me, it was the grace that was within me. Okay? The first thing I want you to recognize is that he doesn't say, I am what I am and that's all that I am. Right? That's Popeye, not Paul. And it's an excuse. It, right? We walk into situations and we go, well, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying everything I am is because God has given, because God has graced, because freely God has made available to me. And that's true of Paul, but it's also true of you. Okay? The intelligence you bring to your job, uh, the uh, disciplines that you got from your household, the fact that you were born in this part of the world where there were opportunities versus another part of the world where there was not, none of that can you take the credit for. All of that comes back to a God who graciously gave those things to you, okay? But what Paul says on top of that is that he didn't just leave that grace lying there, um, you know, like, like a gift you just put on the shelf to look at. He says, nevertheless, I labored extremely. I took that grace and I harnessed it. I used, utilized it greatly. And he says, but even so, I did that recognizing the fact that it was grace, right? Here's another way to put it, and it involves servants. One of Jesus' first miracles takes place at a wedding in the city of Cana, okay? And what happens is that the wedding has been poorly planned, and so they've drunk uh, all of the available wine that uh, Jewish weddings go on for days, okay? And so it's day one, and they're already hitting bottom. The party's about to come to a screeching halt. And so Jesus' mom comes to him and explains this, and she she doesn't know the whole of who Jesus is, but she knows, right? An angel told her who Jesus was. There's the fact that she'd never slept with a man. There's these details, right? And so she brings the problem to Jesus like he can do something about it, and he does something about it. But here's what happens. He quietly turns to some servants of the party, that just the waiters once again, and he says, I want you to take the jars, these stone jars here, and go fill them up with water. So they do so. And then he says, now I want you to take a spoon and take a tasting of this water to the master of ceremonies, the guy who's running and orchestrating the party. The guy tastes it and he goes, that's the best wine I've ever had. He even goes to the, the bride and the groom and he says, you know, most parties, they bring out the best vintage first and then when people have had too much, then they bring out the terrible stuff. He's like, but you've saved the best for last, okay? Now, why am I telling you about this miracle? Because it illustrates something that I think is really helpful, Okay. What could those servants have done to make that water wine? Nothing. But it is intriguing to me that what they did, filling those pots with water, had a direct result on how much wine there was. In fact, it's emphasized in the story because it says when they filled them, they filled them to the brim. What would have happened if they had filled them halfway? Would there have been wine? Yes, but half as much. Okay. That balance there is what we're talking about here. That relationship between the fact that God has graciously given and man's responsibility is that relationship. There is nothing I can do when I preach to make this water wine. But when I study and when I work and when I submit myself to God and when I put effort into it, there is a relationship between how much wine there is. I don't know any other way to explain it than that, but that's what Paul is pointing to here. So he reminds us, it's only of grace. 
Grace is how I've done these things. You know, he says, by grace, I came as a skilled master builder. But look at what he says. He says, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So the idea here is like when we build houses today and you've got a general contractor and he calls in specialists. So you've got the drywall guy and the plumbing guy and the foundation is laid and he says, I came and I laid the foundation. And the implication he makes is anyone who comes now builds on top of that foundation, right? You'd be relatively mad if you were building a new house and the foundation was laid and here comes the framer and he frames on the lot next door. That, that doesn't, that's not how it's supposed to go. The whole purpose of the foundation is because you need it for the frame to be on top of it. And so this is what he says, and he, he points out here, he says, uh, and someone else is building upon it. Verse 10, he finishes, let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then he explains, verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, I don't want to assume that you all know the importance of a foundation to a building. Because frankly, I know hardly anything about buildings. And the only reason I know about this is because it's used emphatically, consistently in the Bible. But here's the reality, okay? The reason buildings stand in storms, uh, the reason why they stay upright, the reason why they don't collapse like something out of a Little Rascals TV show uh, is because they are rooted in the ground through the foundation, right? You dig down and you pour cement and you build something stable because ground in and of itself isn't stable, okay? Um, when, I, when I went to college, I went to Central Washington University in Ellensburg and they had a library there that they had to abandon as a library because when they filled it with all the books, the building began to sink, okay? The ground was too soft and the weight of all of those books actually started to sink the building. So they changed it to something that was just full of bodies and classrooms instead of thousands and thousands of books. Um, the reality is without a foundation, buildings are even worse off. They're even more prone to slipping and sliding. You know, Jesus tells this parable about the wise man who builds his house on the rock and the foolish man on the sand. It's the same principle. But what Paul points out here is that the church is built upon Jesus Christ. That if it's not built on Jesus, it's not the church. And that if it's the church, it's built upon Jesus, right? He says there's only one foundation and this is what we all build upon, okay? This is why when Peter and uh, James and John are talking with Jesus and Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're a prophet, some say John the Baptist. And he says, but who do you say? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, Peter, that's right. And not only did God reveal that to you, that's not something you thought of yourself, he says, but on this rock I will build my church, right? Jesus the Messiah is the foundation. It's the basis. It's the reality that it's all built upon, okay? Now, he says, anyone who seeks to build the church, any leader or pastor who's employed or called or gifted, that's where they build. That's where they build on. Their job isn't to lay a different foundation, Okay. And what does he say in verse 12? If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Okay, so what he recognizes here, um, first, let me, let me lay down a foundation about foundations before we move forward. What does the foundation do? For one, it's what everything else is built upon, okay? And so if I can take this down to a personal level, because the reality of Jesus' foundation is not just true as the church collectively, but each of us as Christians. When we talk about Jesus being our Savior or what it means to be a Christian, it means that our life is built upon the rock. Okay? 
that it's the thing that defines the shape of our life, that it's the thing we depend upon, it's the thing that gives stability and strength, it's what we build upon, okay? Strength is another way to think about it. A foundation exists to give us strength. And so when you ask the question, what gives you strength? As a Christian, the ultimate and bedrock level answer is Jesus. That's what we rely on for strength. That's what gives us peace, security, structure, stability. And then there's one other thing that I want to mention here, which is what a foundation does. A foundation gives shape to the building, right? When, when they pour cement, they pour it in the shape of all of the walls of the building because the walls are what you're holding up. And so there's a sense then where your life is cruciform. It's Christ-shaped. It's built around who Jesus was. And when you build rightly on the foundation, it takes that same shape. In the same way, if Jesus is the foundation of the church, then the church has to look a particular way because the groundwork has already been laid. Okay, The shape is already given. And to build outside the confines of that is not really to build on the foundation at all, okay? And so the idea I want to hammer home here is the importance of this. But what he says next is, now, as we build upon the foundation, as pastors and leaders, in fact, let me expand this out because I know a lot of you are thinking, what does this have to do with me? Now, let me just remind you for later that you're the field, you're the building, and so are the Corinthians, so Paul isn't writing this to pastors. He's writing it to the church. So these are need-to-know things for you, not just for me. But the second thing I want to point out is here he broadens out. He doesn't just talk about Paul and Apollos. He says anyone who builds. And it's intriguing to me that there's another place where Paul uses the building metaphor, and it's Ephesians chapter 4. And this is what he says. God has given apostles and prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for ministry to build up the body of Christ. And he continues to move on, and he uses that word build multiple times in that passage. When we use the word as Christians, edification, it's actually just a modification of the word to build, okay? Edify means to strengthen, to build up, okay? And so my point is here, there's a sense where all of us as Christians are called to build the church, to build one another, to take part in this building project that the Bible calls the church. And so what he says next applies to everyone. And what he says here is we all build and we all must build only on the foundation. There's nowhere else to build. There's no other foundation to lay. And he says, but we all build with different materials. And this is what he says. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Don't think jewels, think marble. Okay? It, it, when we build buildings, we don't naturally build them with rubies. It's not part of the building. It might be a decoration. But he's thinking marble. Okay? Like the temples that are available in the city of Corinth. Or he says, wood, hay, and straw. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't read that without instantly thinking of what fairy tale? Three little pigs, right? Maybe it's just me, but, right, you got a house of straw, you got a house of sticks, and then you got a house of bricks. This is, the, it's similar to what he's talking about. But I want you to notice here, he says that we all build with all of this. That's important. What the point that he's about to make is not a, some of you are good builders with good supplies and others of you are using crappy stuff the reality he's saying is when all of us build it's a mixed bag some of us some of the time gold silver precious stone other times wood hay stubble okay now second if you're building a house I recognize we're in kind of a, a hipster revolution where we want to build things out of wood this will become really important in just a second because he brings in fire 
right? You don't need a big bad wolf to recognize that building your house out of sticks is a bad idea. All you need to do is pick up a Seattle history book and read about the Great Seattle Fire, okay? Because this entire downtown area was wood buildings, and it's not now, and that's because it all burned down, okay? And so they changed the way that they build because they recognized that the risk of a wooden city was too great, especially when you've got all this dreary weather, weather and you're constantly using furnaces indoor, which is what happened. That's why the city burned down. But here's the point. He says, all of us are building on this foundation. All of us are bringing something to the table. All of us have a part to play. And here he says, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it's revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Holy cow. There are so many moving parts in that sentence and all of them are mysterious. Made manifest is not how we normally think of building, right? We all know that thing they do at art projects where they do the unveiling. We don't normally think of buildings that way, right? But he says that what you're building with might not be visible right now. Maybe it's like a really terrible contractor, right, who's filling in your walls by cutting corners and he's, he's doing all of these cheap things that can't be seen and it doesn't become displayed till you move in and start to use the house or something goes wrong or these types of things. The second thing is he says it will be revealed by the day. Here's another thing we don't generally do. We don't build it dark, right? You don't, you don't make your houses in the darkness, but he's not talking about day as opposed to night. He's talking about the day, okay? Not, not the day after tomorrow, but the day. The day that Martin Luther talked about when he said, there's only two days on my calendar, today and that day, okay? He's talking about the day that Jesus returns. What he's saying here is everything that's happening in your building right now, it's not going to be seen for what it is until the finish line. It's not going to be seen for what it is until Jesus returns. This is another reason, by the way, why it's difficult for us in the midst to be comparative and to rank how people are doing and what they've accomplished, Okay? because some of it is wood, hay, and stubble, and we have no idea. And some of it is gold, silver, and precious stones, and we're completely unaware. There's a lot of this that remains unseen until the day. And then he says it will be tested, and it will be tested by fire. Now, fire is a common theme when it comes to judgment in the Bible, but the reason Paul brings it up here is not because of this big picture of judgment being a conflagration is the word that none of us know, but, but it's the appropriate one here. Um, he's actually bringing it up because he's already talked about flammable building materials, okay? The reason he brings up fire here is because it conveniently behaves very differently in, when interacting with wood, hay, and straw and gold and silver and precious stone, okay? In fact, it's interesting that in the case of gold and silver, it's not just that they remain unscathed, but the quality of gold and silver is actually improved by fire, Right? When we purify gold to get the impurities out, we basically heat it up really hot, the impurities float to the surface and they can be scraped off. And so when we're talking about certain amount of carrots and gold, that has to do with, with weight and with purity. This is part of the process. And so he chooses this as a metaphor. But what he's recognizing is the fact that when everything's seen for what it is, some of the things that you do will survive. Others will not. So things will be shown for what they really are. Your work will be demonstrated for what it is. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, there's a couple of parts to this. First is this. The difference between these two materials is one, because of fire, is temporary, and the other is permanent. 
And the reality is a lot of the things we do to serve the church, a lot of the things we do, a lot of ministries that pastors start, they look like activity, but they won't last. Charles Spurgeon used to say, I can always tell one of my converts because after a while they aren't converts anymore. And this is what he's alluding to. We can do a lot of stuff that has no lasting value, even though it looks good now, right? Uh, even take this idea of a building, okay? So you've got this building, it's on a conveyor belt, you don't know what it's built of, but some of it is lasting stuff, and some of it's wood, hay, and stubble, and you push it through this fireplace, and it comes out the other side, some of it's still standing, other parts not so much. That's the reality of our lives, that some of the things we do may seem really valuable, we may you know, get a pat on the back for it. We may say, say it's so important, but is it really eternally valuable? If I can mix metaphors for a second, this is why Jesus, in his uh, speaking to the disciples about him being the vine and them being the branches, he says, God's goal is that you would bear everlasting fruit. Okay? You guys can do lots of fruitful things in your life, but some of them are eternally fruitful. They're of eternal significance. I mean, just to make an illustration, if somebody becomes a Christian, if they pass from death to life, if now they have eternal life, that is tremendously significant, okay? But it's more than that. Another thing that I think he's trying to allude to here is the reason why we do things. You see, Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount says that a lot of the things we do for God, we really do for us right? So we go and we pray publicly, not because we want to talk to God, not because we want to commune with him, but because we want to impress people around us. And he doesn't say that's not rewarding. He just says, you've got it. You've got your reward. You got the applause. That's what you were after the end. And he says, but if what you're really after is knowing God deeply and personally, then you'll do it in private. And the father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Okay. And the reality is a lot of the wood, hay, and stubble in our life is not that we're not doing the right thing, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. And so we come and, and we have this big, flashy ministry, but it's really about us being big and flashy. We want people to be impressed with us, and you know we point to Jesus, but in actuality, we're really pointing to ourselves. And the church that God is building is the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's a temple, and guess what? You're not what's being worshipped in the temple. And so everything that doesn't point in that direction, everything that's not in itself an actual act of worship is going to pass away. Now, I want to point out here that the idea is not that some of us have good things to bring to the table and some of us have lesser offerings and those don't matter. Whatever Paul means here, he's saying that all of us have the opportunity to bring gold, silver, and precious stones. And there should be a tremendous encouragement in this because when he says that it's going to be revealed in the end, it doesn't just mean that a lot of this is shoddy and we'll be surprised. It also means a lot of it is hidden and we'll be amazed. Okay? One of the things I think a passage like this means is that those who devote themselves to quietly praying for the church, to quietly seeking God's will and asking for revival, and maybe those things are never known by anyone, but the work that they've accomplished will be revealed, right? That's what he says. Now, the last piece he brings into is not just that we're all building uh, and not just that it'll be tested by fire, but there's a reward in this. And that's what he says in verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
Now, I want to be clear here. There's, there's two parts of this reward that are implied in other places that are not what you would think. The first is the fact that the building's still standing, and that's a reward in of itself. What would it be like to think that you've accomplished all these things in your life and then discover that they weren't real? Okay? What if you had the most intense, realistic dream that you had just built this build, uh, business up from scratch and become a millionaire and used your money to completely change the politics of the world and then you wake? How rewarding is that dream now? Not very, because it wasn't real. That's part of this reality, is that for, for some of us, there's no reward in it because we'll realize that we already received our reward that we weren't doing it for good reasons, that what we did wasn't actually of any lasting value, that we brought to the table the, the wisdom of our own schemes, the wood hand stubble of our own planning, and completely missed out the, you know, the storehouse of what God had for us to build, these realities, okay? Another part of it, another part of it that I don't want you to miss is that one of the major rewards of building in this way is just the well-done, good and faithful servant. You've done your acts as to please the Lord, and he's very pleased with it. Listen, many times I think we struggle with, with trying to develop a true altruism, right? That we do things for the right reason. And sometimes we get so bogged down, we're like, but, but aren't I really just a Christian to avoid hell? Aren't, don't I really just do these good things because, because God's going to reward them from me? And, and doesn't that mean that they're inherently selfish? Is there any way around that? There is, okay? This is a place where C.S. Lewis is really helpful when he recognizes the difference between proper rewards and mercenary rewards. If you love a spouse, he says, and that spouse in turn returns that love, that's appropriate and natural and to be expected. But if you do it for money, that's a different thing entirely, right? And so what you need to recognize here is loving the Lord so that he would enjoy that love and would express that enjoyment, that's the way it should work. That's the way you were built to work according to the Bible, okay? Have you ever seen Chariots of Fire? The main character is a runner, and it's an interesting story. He's a Christian, and he decides not to run in the Olympics, true story, because it happens on a Sunday, and he sees it as work. He sees it as his Sabbath, so he refuses to run, and it costs him even the opportunity to win a medal. But he's juxtaposed with another character who, who, who says that when that starting gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to validate my existence. But you know what the main character says that I find so interesting? He says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. That's the difference between this natural relationship between reward and this mercenary one. One is saying, I'm doing this to demonstrate that I matter. And the other one says, I'm doing this out of a place of rest because this is who God made me. In the same way, in the same way, one of the greatest rewards that we receive according to the Bible is just the reality that God is pleased with us, that we've participated in what he had planned. But I don't want to downplay the fact that the Bible does emphasize rewards. Okay, Now, those rewards are tremendously gracious because the reality is whatever we earned we earned with the gifts that God has given us, right? When the servants in Jesus' parables take the talents of their master and then invest them, it's not their own money on the table, okay? And that reality is there, and it's even greater for us because it's not our own skills in investing that we bring to the table. When you trace it back, it always comes back to God, and so it's still a very gracious thing. But the reality is it says here that 
you're reward-oriented because God desires to reward you. And the issue in our lives is so often we settle for these passing, um, you know, these passing baubles of life, you know, instead of this everlasting crown, instead of these rewards that God wants to give. Now, notice what he says next. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer lost, lost, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What an important verse. At this point, it'd be really easy to think, well, then aren't we really just talking about a, a works-based salvation? Aren't you just saying that we need to get to work because the fire's coming, and if we don't do a good job, nothing will last, and it's over? And he, he, he clarifies here, and he says, this isn't about salvation. This isn't about heaven or hell, okay? The reality is salvation itself is a gift from God. There's a sense where there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no judgment for you. But this judgment, even the word that Paul uses here is a different judgment. The recognition here is all of us have saved lives. Some of us will have productive saved lives. That's the distinction that he's making. And so he says here they will be saved, but only as through fire. Let me give you a, a modern paraphrase. Only by the skin of their teeth. The idea, I kind of picture it, is that you're standing in this building that you've made and the fire goes down and you realize it's all burning, that it's not safe and you just barely get out. And so the idea here is that all you have to show for all of your work is smoke and you still smell like it. I don't want to underemphasize that reality. It is completely possible for a Christian to have a saved life and a wasted life. That's what Paul is saying here. And so... The first thing that we see is that because the church belongs to God, this sort of party mentality that we have and this ranking of, of leaders is completely outright because there's really only one leader. Peter puts it best. He calls pastor under-shepherds. A pastor is an under-shepherd. What's an under-shepherd? Well, they work under the shepherd, right? That's the idea. The idea here is that one of the things you need to see about authority is that you're you're an authority under authority, okay? The second thing he says, it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So that shapes what the work looks like. It makes us responsible, uh, and, and it also means that we can't just do our own thing, okay? If you're gonna go all, um, oh, I'm not gonna be able to think of an architect that does crazy things, so I won't even try. But if you're gonna go all rogue and try and build your own thing, go ahead, build it, but you're not building the church. That's not where he finishes, and this is the one that's the most head-scratching to me. Because notice what he says next in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So the third thing he says here, the church belongs to God, it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and then lastly, it's filled with the Holy Spirit and is therefore the temple of God. Do you see why I said that this is triune in nature? God the Father owns the church. It's built upon God the Son. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what he's emphasizing. And he says, because it's filled with the Spirit. And what would you expect him to say? I would expect him to say, because it's filled with the Spirit, division doesn't make any sense because we all have the same Spirit. But he doesn't make a call to unity here. In fact, here, it doesn't even seem like he's addressing the leaders of the church. He actually gives a tremendously scary warning. Right? He says, look, it doesn't matter how you build on the foundation. All of you are saved, even if it's just by fire. But here he says, listen, if you destroy the church, God will destroy you. What in the world is he talking about? 
The point has to do with the idea of holiness, okay? What's the difference between the temple and any other building in Jerusalem? One has the presence of God because it's the place where his spirit dwells. That's what the word holy means. It means unique, different, set apart for God. And so when he reminds us here that we have the Holy Spirit, he's quick to add, um, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Why? For God's temple is holy. Now, it's possible that he's recognizing the fact that not everybody who's in the church is a part of the church and that not everybody's actually trying to build the church, but as Paul says in other places, uh, false shepherds, wolves in sheep's clothing will come to destroy the church. But it seems a little bit out of place here. I think what he's recognizing and what he's stating is rooted in that truth, but it's something different. Here's the point. When we divide lines and end up on opposite teams and when we fight other churches and other ministries and we stand against other things, we're fighting the church. And here's how he puts it when he's using the body metaphor. He says, listen, you're the body, so be careful in biting at one another that you don't devour yourselves, okay? The reality is if a body is fighting with itself, we call that cancer and it's destructive. And it's not destructive to those people over there or that business over there. It's self-destructive. It seems to me that's what Paul's reminding here. He's saying, Corinthians, who do you think you're fighting with? Who do you think you're painting? When you stab that other Christian, do you not bleed together? This is the idea he's pointing to. The, the re- reality is, don't you understand? Don't you understand that God has filled you all with his spirit? that you're all part of this temple. And even if you're called to build it, you're also the stones. That's the one place where all these metaphors break down, right? Is Paul just a farmer and not part of the field? No, he's part of the field. He needs that same ministry. Is he just a builder and not a brick? No, he's the brick as well. This is the only place where that is brought to bear, which is this fuller reality that we are both sheep and shepherds. I don't know anything that's more destructive than a pastor who forgets that. Right, who begins to function in autonomy as, you know, the the worst version of God's gift to man. These types of things, but but it's just as bad. It's just as bad as if the church at large forgets these truths. It's just as dangerous. God's temple is holy. Now, listen. This is not a metaphor. When the Bible calls God. Uh, Uh, the church, God's temple. This isn't an image. The temple in Jerusalem, that was the image. We're the thing the temple was pointing to. We're the reality that God had planned. And he said, let me give you a picture so you can understand what I'm about to do. We are set apart. We are holy. We are the place that God dwells. And that's why he says, and you are that temple. Okay? Let me draw... Let me draw an application. If the church belongs to God, if it's built upon the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished, right? When Jesus said, it is finished, that means something. And it's not, well, it is started and now you Christians get to finish it. No, there's a sense where the foundation is laid and the building is going up and that's not an issue, right? 
when it says here that we are God's temple who are filled with the Spirit, that the church is filled with the Spirit, the reality that it's trying to hammer home is this is not just some other organization. This is not just a merely human thing. And so when we treat leaders as we would merely as humans do, when we, uh, when we view the way uh, other Christians are the same way that we allow in other parts of our lives, not only are we falling short of what God's called us to and recognizing the fact that everybody's created in the image of God, but even worse than that, we're forgetting what the church actually is. We're forgetting that the church is all about God, created, found upon, filled with God. And so that's why I'm just merely a pastor. I'm just merely a servant. I'm just a day laborer, you know, and in that sense, I'm replaceable. And God has given me a particular gift and a particular calling, and ultimately that comes down completely to faithfulness. But I'm not going to look to you guys for my reward. And I'm not going to look for uh, that reward from other churches. And if I get caught assessing my value against other people, I've completely missed the point. Okay? And it's the same for you guys. One of the things that we tend to fall into is being judgmental of pastors. And Paul will deal with that in a few weeks. He'll go, listen, only one person gets to be the judge and jury. Only one person gets to assess the value of a servant, and that's his master. Servants don't get to hold up scorecards, even though some of you like to be the Russian judge, right, and lowball everybody. He says that doesn't matter. What matters in the end is faithfulness, and that faithfulness is judged by God. But on the other hand, on the other hand is this dangerous ability we have to look to our leaders because they're tangible and let them be stand-ins for God himself, right? The idea of a cult of personality was coined by a guy who recognized that one of the things that, that causes governments to function in authority is not tradition and not legality, but charisma, right? And propaganda and eff effectively um, um, divination, right? Making someone who's merely a man to be out, out to be God. And this is not just a pastor with a selfish and personal agenda problem. We were created to worship. And it's amazing, isn't it, how often the revolutionary becomes just another dictator? Why? Because it's so easy for us to just put someone up on that pedestal and surrender ourselves. And part of the reason is a good thing. It's because that's what you were built for. You were built without independence in mind. You're not enough. You need a leader. You need a God. The scary thing is that we settle for so much less than God himself is. And we're just as prone to the church. We're just as prone to doing this. And so, here's the difference. If a good thing lets you down, it hurts. It always does, right? If, if your bank, bank account suddenly goes completely empty, if you were really banking on a promotion and it falls through, they always hurt. Right? When a friend lets you down, it hurts. But when you've made something the center of your life that you find your meaning in, it destroys you. That's the danger of the church. If we don't forget, or if, if we find ourselves forgetting that this is God's church, 
and it's his plan and he'll do the work, if we forget the fact that it was built on Jesus Christ and the fact that the spirit is the one who's working in it, who brings the growth and all these things, then when man lets you down and they will, it won't just hurt. It will destroy you. It will devastate you. It will uproot you. You'll be like the foolish man who's, who's just started a new building. It's got a new foundation, and it's a foundation named Pastor So-and-so. And it's not a foundation at all, because there's only one foundation. And so that will shake, and it will topple. This is why these things are so important. But, on the other hand, God has graciously given us, yes, and God brings the growth and the increase. And there's nothing we can do to make the water wine. But one of the great truths that's presented in this passage is you can actually be a part of something eternal. You can actually build something beautiful and lasting and full. And this isn't just true in the church, by the way. There is this reality that building God's kingdom, which involves all the vocations, not just the ministry vocations, um, that if it's done, it's unto the Lord. And it's done to... Uh, pursue human flourishing and it's done in the power and the gifts and the strengths that God has given you to his glory uh, there's lasting realities available uh, and I think that's super exciting because if it wasn't for this then we're just stuck in Ecclesiastes again going what does it matter everything I do at the end of it all I'm going to leave you know uh, Jay-Z has a line in a song where he says his greatest ambition is to leave uh, a good-looking corpse. But do you recognize how short-sighted that is? How long will it be good-looking? A couple of days? A couple of weeks? Right? The reality is, someday there will be people who don't remember how attractive Jay-Z was. But what it's talking about here is something that God is doing, and so it's inherently eternal. It's super exciting. Let's pray. Father, I confess that, um, that these misunderstandings are not just Corinthian problems or non-pastor problems, that, that I find these own skewed ways of thinking about things, about other churches, about this church and myself, and I forget, I forget that it's your church and that the foundation, which has already been laid, there's no other, is on the work of Jesus Christ. And in that sense is finished and complete. I forget that you've made your spirit available that has set us apart. And so that's why it makes no sense for us to be merely human. That's why it makes no sense for us to, de to be divisive and bite and devour one another. I pray, Lord, that we would, uh, especially in these coming weeks, that we would recalibrate the way we think about leadership, the way we think about participating in the church, uh, in farming and building and being the temple. I ask that you'd protect us from these proneness we have to, to settle for less, to take people and put them up on a pedestal as if the thing that involves, the thing that we worship, the thing at the center of the temple, the thing that's on display, the thing where we say this, everybody look at this, it's just, just another broken human being. I thank you, Lord, that you give us good reminders like this um, because it's you 
who give the growth. It's you that's at work. It's you who takes the seed and makes it bud and takes the bud and makes it flower and takes the flower and makes it bear fruit. And that fruit can even be eternal. And so I pray, Lord, that we'd recognize the grace that each of us has been given, the calling that each of us have been placed in, the talents that each of us have been bestowed, and that we would work hard not not to earn your love, uh, but as a response to the incredible privilege it is that we'd learn to say, like in Jesus' parable, at the end of a hard way of working as we come inside, and the master says, well done, we just say, we're nothing but unprofitable servants. Teach us that reality. Teach us that humility. We pray that you do these things in Jesus' name.